It's my privilege to be with you today. And it's, we have this theme of uh, wilderness this morning. Wilderness factors rather significantly in both Christian and Jewish traditions. For people like us, the wilderness is, is one of those places you go to from the city, like on vacation. Go to the John Muir wilderness and hang out. But for the people of the ancient Near East, the, the wilderness was, was the space that surrounded their, their tribes and their villages and their towns. You would only need to take a few steps outside of the city walls to find yourself right in the wilderness. And for many of those ancient people, the wilderness was a, a frightening place. It was not only a deserted place, but it was a place that could possibly be inhabited by the evil spirits, uh, demonic presences. And if it wasn't them that was haunting the space, it might be criminals and thieves that were out there. Battles had been fought in the wilderness, and so that, that deserted ground was stained with the blood of the many who had fallen. People who wandered off by themselves in the wilderness typically never came back again. But for the ancient people of Israel, the, the wilderness was also a place where they had been formed by the hand of God. David's ancestors had wandered in the Sinai wilderness for many, many years. And in that time, the forces that had shaped them during their slavery in Egypt were gradually stripped away. And the people were formed in a new way through signs and wonders, through the provision of, of food and water where there had been none, by commandments that would orient them away from the gods of their former captors and turn them toward the one true God who had rescued them from slavery. And now David is in the wilderness where he finds refuge in a large cave as the, the bloodthirsty Saul is on the hunt for him. So the story we heard this morning tells of Saul, and 3,000 of his men hunting for David and his relatively small band of 600. Saul invades the wilderness with violence and power and in his paranoia seeking to destroy the one, David, who he believes threatens his position. But when Saul slips into the cave to relieve himself, as our scriptures so delicately put it, he's suddenly made vulnerable in, in a most humiliating way. And he doesn't realize that David and a group of his men are hiding silently in the very dark recesses of that cavern. And clearly the power has now shifted. Well, David's men very understandably see this as a golden opportunity for David to dispatch Saul and, and make a claim to the throne of Israel. And it was probably also not lost of them that, on them that Saul had just turned their special hiding place into his own personal porta potty. Uh, and defiled it, uh, which was another good reason to do him in. That alone would be enough. David doesn't do that. David doesn't take that opportunity. He shows Saul that he did indeed have the opportunity to kill them, evidenced by the, the piece of robe that he had cut. And he didn't destroy Saul at Saul's most defenseless moment. And Saul, at least for the time being, having heard David's voice, um, sets aside his kind of murderous schemes you know, when we look at Saul and all the stories surrounding them, he, he seems to be a man formed by anxiety, surely by mental illness and demonic influence as well, but anxiety is all over Saul. He was anxious about the possibility of, of losing his power. He was anxious over his throne being dismantled, losing his entire kingdom to David. He'd become paranoid, and, and he sought to destroy the one that he thought threatened him the most. 
And Saul attempted to infect David with his anxiety, forcing David to, to hide like a refugee in the wilderness. But, but the wilderness seemed formative to David in a way that Saul very clearly did not anticipate. David was shaped by God in that deserted place. He wasn't shaped by Saul. As Eugene Peterson puts it, Saul neither defined nor dominated the wilderness. The wilderness was full of God, not Saul. Well, we heard this morning that Jesus himself was also shaped in the wilderness. We don't often think of Jesus as a person being formed and shaped in the way that we might be or the way that all human beings are. It's easy to think of him as someone who was just sort of born, ready to go, uh, a static kind of being without any need for formation. But we read in the, in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus matured, growing up in both body and spirit, blessed by both God and people. We see him from birth to death, moving from youth to adulthood. Like all human beings, he did grow through along that path, that trajectory of life. And along the way, he was formed by the hand of God. He would have also been formed by the context in which he lived. And the time that Jesus spent in the wilderness, the story that we heard from the Gospel of Mark this morning, was a time ordained by God. But it wasn't necessarily a safe time. He had to deal with intrusions to that solitary space from at least three sources. The first intrusion was aloneness itself. He was all by himself, without food, without any distractions outside of what the wilderness might offer. Such isolation for most of us might create a desperate longing for human interaction, something that we would want to resolve as quickly as possible. I know that sometimes in my office when I'm the only one working there, when the staff is off doing other things and I'm left to my own devices for too long, I, I want the UPS guy to stick around, have a cup of coffee with me. It's too lonely in this place. I want a desperate fix to my aloneness, but Jesus doesn't seem to do that. Um, his inner life would be shaped only by his dependence upon God, not by his desire to fill that lonely need. He was also subject to the intrusion of the local animal life. Uh, animals, wild animals occupied that wilderness, and we have no record of him being harmed in any way by the, the animals of that area. We're only told that the wild animals were with him. And we don't know if that means they just were in the region or if they came sniffing around to see what he was up to. Like a, the very first human in our creation count in Genesis, Jesus finds himself only with non-humans as companions, wild ones at that. And finally, he's intruded upon by one known as the accuser, the one whose name is given as Satan. And while both Matthew and Luke in their gospels flesh out this part of the story in detail, Mark only tells us the basics, that Jesus was tempted in that place. In his time in the wilderness, Jesus was shaped by struggle. When the accuser came to him, Jesus was pushed to either embrace or reject his core identity. Matthew's gospel tells us that, that Jesus was tempted in three ways. He was tempted to turn stones into bread, to throw himself off the highest pinnacle of the temple, let the angels catch him, and to worship Satan in exchange for, for global power and control. Henry Nouwen uh, calls these temptations the temptations to relevance, popularity, and to a distorted kind of leadership. Well, we know that in reading the other gospel accounts of this episode that Jesus countered those temptations with Scripture. 
he was, he was grounded in those texts. And those texts had already helped to shape his life. And in the end, the accuser does not prevail. Jesus doesn't waver. Jesus may have seen with his eyes just the stark landscape around him, maybe even within his own mind, seeing the images of the dark possibilities that the tempter had laid before him. But it was the unseen presence of his heavenly father that really carried the day. Uh, last weekend, I spoke at a retreat held at a camp in the desert just outside of Barstow, an area that looks just like that piece of art that uh, Beth shared this morning that I didn't know you were going to share. Thank you for that. If you've been up in that area, it's pretty barren land. Uh, like, you, I mean, that picture just captures it right away. Once we got off the freeway, we were on three miles of dirt roads that really served to um, reinforce the fact that we were indeed in the wilderness. And when you look around that dry, barren landscape on those rocky mountains, it's very easy to imagine how dangerous that place can possibly be. Uh, in the heat of summer, to be left unprotected out there, would, 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 you would die. You couldn't survive in that, in that landscape. As we prepared for this weeks ahead of time for this retreat, the weather report was supposed to be 100 degrees every day. But when we got there, it was only about 80. Thank you, Lord. But when we got settled into this, this place, this kind of fun Western-style camp, we wandered around for a while, my wife and I, and we discovered there was a lake on this property, a real lake. I had a dock and a water slide. It was a pretty good-sized lake. And I was looking at that, really curious about how they did this in this place. And uh, I was told that a portion of the Mojave River runs underground in that part of the state, and it goes right under that campground. So a few years ago, uh, people just dug down until they hit those hidden waters, and the waters sprung up, they cleared away some sand, and magicalness happened, and they have a lake. And it's lovely. It's lush. There's trees growing all around it. It's very, very beautiful. Waters are cold. And what we could see with our eyes in those very cool, beautiful waters came from something that was completely unseen. The wilderness offers us a really stark contrast between the seen and the unseen. In En Gedi, Saul saw only an enemy who he believed threatened his existence, and he responded only with anxiety and violence. But David trusted in the God who seemed to, to fill that deserted place with his unseen presence. And David saw the possibility for redemption. The accuser took advantage of the opportunity to confront Jesus in the wilderness. He saw someone who might be manipulated, even subverted. But in that place of solitude, that place of scant resource, Jesus turned his eyes only to the unseen one who had called him beloved. You know, it, it really isn't unusual for folks like us to talk about having a, a wilderness experience. We use that language from time to time. When we say that, we're usually talking about times in our lives where we felt like we were just wandering spiritually, maybe feeling untethered from things that had given us security in the past, maybe even struggling to figure out where God might be in a particular circumstance. But our stories this morning suggest to us that the wilderness, that untethered, wandering, deserted place, is a place that's filled with God, not a place that is absent of God. It was the wilderness where God led and formed his people so that they would truly be his own. And the wilderness is very often the place where God does his best work. Now, of course, God's present in the city, too. The city, the, the civilized populated place that we're all familiar with. That's the place where most of the drama of life happens. 
That's where we see the intrigue and the, and the politics. We see the crime and the turmoil. We also, though, see art and we see music. God's there, but so are all the other forces and voices that clamor for everybody's attention. It's all there. Many of those forces emerge from tragic places. And, and most ministry, God's ministry, takes place in tragic environments. And so we understand that being aware of those forces and voices is important as we seek to participate in God's redemptive work in the world. Sometimes, however, those sounds of the city become so loud and so alluring that we're drawn into them in such a way that we begin to forget about God. We hear a voice recommending that we turn stones into bread, and we think that might be a very, very good idea and a very efficient way to address social injustice giving consideration to throwing ourselves off of a tall building so that God can send angels to rescue us seems like a great way to, stand, to stage a spectacular religious event, one that everybody would show up for. We could even be lured into various forms of worship, adorations that, that immerse us in things that aren't even worthy of worship. Diversions like those are the ways that people just forget about God. You know, it seems that God uses the wilderness, to address the toxic effect of these diversions. It took a very, very long time for the ancient Hebrew people to be detoxed from the effects of their slavery in Egypt. David, in the wilderness, was, was cleansed of, from the anxiety of Saul and freed from the need to destroy him. And the temptations that assaulted Jesus were just washed away as angels came to attend to the needs that the accuser thought he could exploit. You know, I just wish it was another way. Don't you? I wish this, this happened in a different way. It would be a whole lot easier for me just to read a book that told me how to get my life back on track, hear a sermon that just kind of brought me back into the center of things, restoring my memory about God without distracting me from all the other stuff that I like to do. How can I be in the wilderness and binge watch Netflix? I, that's a problem for me. Maybe for you, I don't know. But it doesn't seem to work that way, does it? It just doesn't work that way. In the wilderness, whether we're talking about an actual physical wilderness or, or, or just part of our own inner journey, the, the distractions and dependencies become stripped away. The things that brought us security and comfort just don't seem to be accessible to us anymore. In the wilderness, we find a place that's not filled with those things at all, but it is a place that's filled with God. Even so... The wilderness often feels to us like a desolate place. And we would make a mistake if we believed that God is always with us, except in the places of desolation. It's often in the seemingly desolate places that we remember God. You know, I, I think there's something important about this, this kind of movement between the, the city, the, the dramas that we experience in human interaction, and the wilderness movement between those two environments. Throughout the history of the people of God, there have been those who, who don't ever leave that. They don't ever leave the city. And then there's been others who escape permanently off into the wilderness. Uh, some go there, have gone there by choice, seeking to keep themselves free from the uncleanness they've experienced in the city. Others were just compelled to the wilderness. But either way, they're extracted from the city. And I find that I cannot be attentive to God's presence 
in the daily routines and turmoil of human interaction unless I've engaged in some sort of wilderness experience along the way. I just quit being attentive. That attentive might come from disciplines of, say, regular retreat times, um, times of quiet and prayer, but it also comes in times of loss and desperation. It's the latter wilderness that seems to cost us so dearly because we're challenged by the absence of the things that we have lost. It's in that experience of loss that we find ourselves looking to God in new ways and perhaps praying for the first time with a desperate anticipation, give us this day our daily bread. A prayer that I have a hard time praying when my pantry's full. You know, I believe that God's always at work in the world. And you probably believe that too. And sometimes we experience that presence in the most unlikely of places, among the, the unlovely and the unclean, among the outsiders and the outcasts. But unless our lives are formed along the way in the various wildernesses that we encounter, then we run the risk of missing the hand of God amid the clutter of the city. We can very easily slip into desperate acts to show our power rather than simply removing a little piece of that robe to show our love. We might cave into temptations that seem on the, on the surface to lead to very efficient results instead of seeing the deep, unseen structure of God's intentions and desires for the world. God is present to us always, and he meets us. He meets us in the city. And he meets us deeply in the wilderness. As our team was leading us in worship, um, that refrain keeps coming to mind. And maybe it's something for some of you today. Maybe, maybe this wilderness theme hits a little too close to home for you. We sang breakthrough, calling a God, his spirit to break through. And maybe it helps us to think about that. Not so much of God breaking through from the outside, but breaking through our lives from the inside. That God is present to us always including in the, in the desolate, desperate places. And as you think about God breaking through into that place for you this morning, join me in prayer. Oh God, you are my God, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands and call on your name. Amen.